All right, Dad Heads, right now we got Larry Lessig. He's a professor of law at Harvard. He ran for president in 2016. He's host of a couple great podcasts, and he hosted an amazing TED Talk, which will blow your mind. I'll let him tell you all about it. Welcome, Lawrence. And uh, first of all, thank you very much for putting up with our incompetence. Last week, we were supposed to do this, and uh, <laughs> we confuse time zones because we're not as smart as you. It's complicated. No, I make that <laughs> mistake all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the reason I wanted to have you on, Larry, is um, I watched your TED Talk. Blown away by it for for a long time. I've uh, my biggest beef with government has been that it's it's corrupt. They can't get anything done because of the money. Um, you point out how government is broken because you can't win a national election unless you have donors who the top one one percent of the people in the country, which is like one hundred forty four thousand people, which equals the number of Lester's in the country. Unless you appeal to those people and get their money, you have no shot at winning. Yeah. Now, the, the race that I'm most focused on is not actually the presidential race. It's actually Congress. And the right. problem with our government is Congress. You know, we can imagine electing a really great president. We've done that. Not so recently, but we've done it. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but the real problem is if you've got a Congress that's spending 30 to 70 percent of its time sucking up to these incredibly rich people who turn out to be just the same number of people as are named Lester in the United States, then you've got a Congress who's so focused on making those rich people happy that it can't do anything that ordinary people really care about. And that is the core, I think, of the corruption that has made it impossible for our government to function. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and, and you talk about the Lesters, and that's like 144,000 people, but you can go even further, and, and you did, and it's something like, wrote it down, 0.000042% of the population, which is 132 Americans, contribute 60% of the money. So they basically, all the politicians are supposed to be a government of the people for the people, but it's a government of about 132 people. Yeah, those are the people who are giving to super PACs. And super PACs have become the most dominant form of funding campaigns, both at the presidential level and the congressional level, especially in the Senate. And so, again, it's like they're humans, these politicians. And just think about it in your own life. If you're bending over backwards to make these funders happy so that they give your campaign the money your campaign needs, how are you ever going to be able to do anything that makes those funders unhappy? And indeed, this was Donald Trump's greatest line. You know, I remember in September of 2015 when he was debating the Republicans. And he said, you know, every one of you on stage um, I own because I've given money to all of you people. And I know how you behave because right. when you get money, then you are so keen to keep me happy. And he, and he you know, when he's attacking Jeb Bush, he said, how can Jeb Bush make the right decision for America when he knows that decision might hurt the interests of somebody who's just given him a million dollars to his super PAC. Yeah. So Trump was focused on this. I think that's why so many Trumpers were excited by the drain the swamp slogan, which of course, you know, he's done nothing to drain the swamp. The swamp no, is deeper. No. The monsters are more vicious than they've ever been. But it's, it's a measure of America. You know, the fact is Americans, whether Republicans or Democrats, look at the system and think the system is corrupt and they want to do something to, do, to, to, to change that. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go further with that on Donald Trump, I, I think you're right. Like I was definitely not a Trump supporter, nor did I vote for him, but I held out a sliver of hope for the guy because of some of that rhetoric. I thought, well, here's a guy who's, who's not going to be a slave to these uh, corporate pay daddies who might actually be able to get some stuff done. Hasn't yeah. worked out that way, but in theory, he could have been the guy had he chosen to, could he not? Yeah, I mean, if you believe, if what he said was true, <laughs> you know, for example, he said he was going to fund his own campaign. Yeah. If he had funded his own campaign, and you remember he said he hated super PACs, if he actually had avoided super PACs, um, then I think there would have been a reason to, to have some sliver, sliver of hope. And, I, you know, I too, I didn't vote for Trump. I certainly didn't support him. But when he won, I thought, okay, maybe he'll deliver. Maybe he'll actually do what he says he's going to do. Uh, and I think none of us could actually believe the guy was so pathological uh, with his inability to utter true statements that, you know, I think we all expected some of the things he was saying were not true. But to discover that basically everything he was saying <laughs> was right. not true was a little bit too much uh, for the too much of a shock for the system. 
Right. Um, you brought up super PACs. So with Citizens United, all this kind of started with uh, corporations or people, which seems like the most bizarre statement I've ever heard. Was this problem as big before Citizens United? Like how, how much has that contributed to the problem? Well, so Citizens United said that corporations, like rich people, in 1976, the Supreme Court had said rich people could spend unlimited amounts of money independently of political campaigns. Citizens United in 2010 said not only rich people, but corporations and unions could spend unlimited amounts of money. Um, now, if that's all that had happened, you know, even though there were many chicken littles, and I was one of them, who said, you know, the sky is falling, corporations are going to spend billions of dollars and dominate our elections. Corporations learned pretty quickly that there was a high cost to free speech. Um, for example, Target supported an anti-gay candidate for governor in Minnesota, and then found their stores being picketed all across the country. So they very quickly looked, this is not cool. We don't want to be in the middle of these kind of political battles. Yeah, it's a bad um, look. And, and, so, and so actually the amount of corporate spending on the Citizens United has not been great. But what did happen after Citizens United is a lower court, this was the um, uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, decided in another case, it's called Speech Now. And what Speech Now said is that if you have a constitutional right to spend unlimited amounts of money, then you have a constitutional right to give unlimited amounts of money to independent political action committees. And that became the super PAC. Right. And the super PAC could hide the identity of its contributors, not yeah, directly. That's what makes it dangerous. They yeah. give them these names that sound like the opposite of what they actually do. Exactly. And so nobody knows really where the money's coming from, but there's an ungodly amount of money in these super PACs now. And the super PACs step in and they spend money. And of course, the public doesn't know where the money's coming from, but the candidates certainly know where the money's coming from. And they know which side of the money they've got to be on in order to avoid the wrath of those who have collected that money. So it is, it is the economics of a protection racket, and it has totally captured control of the institution of our government. And that is the most fundamental corruption that we face right now. For sure, for sure. And, um, you, you know, you're, you're a pretty liberal guy. I'm not a liberal, I'm not conservative, but what, what, what I believe, and I, I think you believe, and you said campaign finance reform is really the only issue that matters. No matter if your biggest issue is, let's say, gun control, or your biggest issue is the climate, or taxes are too high, whatever it is, whether liberal or conservative, doesn't matter until we fix the system, right? So how? How do we go about that? <clears throat> well, I mean, let, let me first double down on your point. Um, you know, some people sometimes talk about campaign finance and they're like, this is just such a boring issue. Um, and as I said in that TED Talk, the point is not that this is the most important issue. It's just the first issue. Yes. Because if you look, the way, look at the way our government cannot function and you ask, why can't it function? It can't function because of the money. And if you were to change the money, then it could function. It could begin to make decisions that were sensible again. So we got to fix this if we were going to fix any of these other issues. So, you know, when people say, look, isn't climate change the most important issue or isn't healthcare for poor people the most important issue? I would say, yeah, you know, what? have at it. Whatever you think the most important issue is, that's fine. But you got to fix this if you're going to fix that. So be smart right. about how you're going to fix that. Now, actually, I am more optimistic today. I've been in this fight now for 12 years. I'm more optimistic today than yeah. I've ever been Why? about us being able to do something. And the reason for that is, you know, there was this effort that Nancy Pelosi led in the House of Representatives to pass a bill called H.R. 1. Yeah. H.R. 1 is the most ambitious um, reform proposal passed by the House in more than 50 years, since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. What H.R. 1 would do is it would change the way campaigns are funded. It would end partisan gerrymandering. It would have automatic vote registration. It had a promise to restore the Voting Rights Act. It, it imposed ethics reform so that congressmen could not do this revolving door out to being lobbyists. They would be worried about their constituents, not about the lobbyists they wanted to work for. It was incredibly ambitious. But the most important thing about H.R. 1 was that she made it first. And by making mm -hmm. it first, what she's saying is exactly what we're saying. Look, you got to fix democracy first. If we fix democracy, then we can start talking about all the other things we need to do, but we need to fix democracy first. Now, I think what Pelosi did, presidential candidates are beginning 
to copy. I mean, I call it not HR1, but POTUS1. And so the question is, which candidates running for president are willing to make the commitment that the first thing they're going to do is to take up this democracy reform? Isn't, and, I'm sorry, go uh, ahead. I feel like, isn't that hard for any of these candidates to make that their number one issue when their campaigns are being funded by the super PACs? Like, how do they, how do they do that? How do they take that money from the super PAC and say, my number one issue is campaign finance reform? Doesn't that eliminate their ability to collect that money? Yeah. But again, I don't, I'm not sure of the effect of money, this kind of money on presidential candidates. I'm really sure of its effect on congressional candidates. I know that they can control Congress. And presidential candidates, you know, they rise or they fall based on all sorts of magic in, in like the media and the moment and, and how attractive they seem to the public. Um, and so that reality is our hope. That's our real hope. Because there have been candidates who have now taken this pledge. If you look at Trevor Noah's interview um, of Pete uh, Buttigieg, um, uh, Mayor Pete said when Trevor said, what's the first thing you're going to do? He said, I'm going to do day one democracy reform, like HR1. And then he went and talked about the uh, Electoral College. But, but the fact that he had said democracy reform, number one, was critical. Um, yeah, you that's encouraging. Uh, a- Andrew Yang, you know, who's been pushing mm-hmm. UBI, which I think is a really great idea. We did a do- democracy town hall with him in New Hampshire. And in the middle of the town hall, he said, OK, look. I've spent the last year going around the country telling people the first thing I'm going to get them is $1,000 a month in universal, uh, universal basic income. He said, I'm going to amend that. I'm going to start saying the first thing I'm going to do is fix democracy. And then I'm going to get you $1,000 a month. Um, and Marianne Williamson has said, said the same thing. Elizabeth Warren came close to saying the same thing um, uh, when she was talking to Chris Hayes. And I think this is the thing we should be rallying people to do, to get Absolutely. them to make a POTUS-1 commitment Tell us what's in that POTUS one. Like, what, what are the fundamental reforms that they're going to get passed immediately? And if we elect one of these people, as hard as this is to imagine, there's actually a shot at getting this reform passed. Because presidents typically get their number one issue enacted. Obama got Obamacare. If Trump had gotten the Mexicans to agree to pay for the wall, he would have gotten a wall. Um, so, you know, you got to set yourself up in a smart way. But I think a candidate could say, look, we all, all of us Americans, whether Republican or Democrat, agree this system is corrupted. So let's start by doing something we all agree on. And that means fixing this corrupted system. And then we'll get on to these other things that we happen to disagree on. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. Like, I, I would support any candidate who came out and made that their number one priority. I haven't heard anyone actually do that. Uh, I'll have to check out the interviews you're talking about. Um, but the, this HR1 um, and this campaign finance reform, what about the idea I, I've been writing about for 20 years, the idea of publicly funded elections? Like when we talk about government um, of the people, for the people, what if we are getting, what if we're the one, only ones who can contribute? Like everybody gets vouchers and you give them to whichever candidate you believe in. And that's the only money they're allowed to use. They can't raise private funds. Is that an idea that could get traction? Is that at all in HR1, or is anyone bringing that to the table? Well, so Andrew Yang announced about uh, six months ago a $100 voucher. Kirsten Gillibrand yesterday announced a $600 voucher. So everybody gets $600, $200 per election. So in some years, you'd only get $200 because the only election you've got is for House. But in presidential years, you'd get at least two, House and then President. And sometimes you'd have House President and Senate. So you could get up to $600 as a voucher to be used to fund campaigns. So she's copying exactly the idea you're talking about. Um, the, the Constitution makes it impossible for us to say this is the only money that can be used in presidential election or in elections. But what you could do, and this is what her bill does, is it says if you're going to accept vouchers, you've got to agree to take no other money. That's it, ah, just vouchers. And okay. so they can say, I'm not going to take vouchers. I'm going to take money the old-fashioned way. But what we know is if the numbers are right, if the, uh, if the contribution is high enough that you could get from vouchers, then people are going to opt into the voucher system, which means they'll be raising money from all of us, not from the tiny fraction of Lester's 
who happen right. to have the money in this current system. Right. So, so what you're saying is it's constitutionally not possible to say you can't take private money, but if they, if they did these vouchers, they could make it so that you can't get the vouchers unless you agree upon that. So then Absolutely. it becomes, then it comes upon the voting public on whether or not they want to trust a candidate who says no to public money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, that's a pretty important, uh, persuasive effect. We forget that every president between Nixon and Obama was elected with presidential public funding. It's a different system, but it was public money. They had to give up all other private money in order to get that public money. Um, and uh, Obama backed out of that because he didn't think he could get enough money to beat uh, McCain. And that became the end of the president's public funding system. But the most important thing about that system was um, the, the way in which it liberated presidents to be presidents. You know, when Ronald Reagan ran for re-election, and remember, Reagan benefited more from public funding than any other president because he ran three national campaigns on the public's time. In 1976, he ran to beat Gerald Ford in the primary and he lost. And then in 80 and 84, he ran a national campaign on public funding. But in 1984, when he ran for re-election, Reagan attended eight fundraisers. When Barack Obama ran for re-election, he attended 220 fundraisers. Wow. And you're like, how can you be president of the United States and go to 220 fundraisers? Now, this president has shown us, it turns out you don't have to do much work to be president. So maybe it's not as hard as it seems. But I think that the most important thing to worry about in the presidency is to avoid a president who is forced to spend all his time with the Lesters. Because if right. you spend all your time with these Lesters, that's the only thing you're going to think about, what they care about. Right. And instead of thinking about what America as a whole cares about. Right. Uh, one other thing I'd, I'd like to point out about Trump is, um, didn't he kind of show us that, yeah, yeah, publicly funded elections and campaign finance reform, seems like you can't get the candidate you want without that, or get, can't get the kind of change you want without that. But didn't he show us it might be possible for us to get a guy in there, in the Senate, in the presidency, without raising money, just somebody who has outreach on, on social media? Yeah, so I think that's possible with the presidency. And, um, you know, it's, it's certainly possible with some of the people running for Congress. So AOC or Michelle Bachman, those are people who can raise money just on the Internet. They're not going to need any real big money at all because there's so much affection for them uh, in the public and the Internet enables them to tap it. But these are the exceptions. You're not going to fund the campaigns of 430 members of Congress through just, you know, social media. It's just right. not possible. And so we can't... We can't imagine a simple solution exists here. We got to confront the fact we're going to have to pay for clean elections. You know, why, why, why is that surprising? You got to pay for the, you know, for good products all over the place. So you're going to pay for good, you're going to pay for good government. You're going to, it's going to cost something. It's going to cost the money of clean elections. Now it turns out not a lot of money. Um, you know, I had a voucher program, not as big as Kirsten Gillibrand's, but my voucher program would have cost about three, $3.5 billion a year. And you're like, well, that sounds like a lot of money until you recognize that the Cato Institute, which is this libertarian think tank, the Cato Institute estimates that corporate welfare in America, meaning money given to for-profit corporations, subsidies, and all sorts of things like that, amounts to $100 billion mm. a year, $100 wow. billion a year. And you're like, if you could just liberate Congress from sucking up to these rich people and corporations they could probably cut that welfare by at least three and a half percent, right? So we could pay for this immediately just by allowing them to be representatives of the people and not representatives of the funders. Yeah. Wow. That, I mean, that's startling. It, it, when you put it like that, it actually saves money. And one thing, um, one thing a lot of conservatives and, and blue collar workers, one thing I don't think they understand about the whole tax system is, is that the only people benefiting from it right now, it's not even the middle class or even the upper middle class. It's the Lesters. They're the only people benefiting from it. Like I did really well last year, right? So by the thinking of some conservatives, I should be, you know, my taxes shouldn't have been that high. I got killed in taxes, right? Because I'm a small business owner. The only, the only people who aren't getting killed are the ones who own like Texaco, Exxon, yeah. Apple. Those are the ones getting the break. And that's not really good for any of us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because the funders are good 
at convincing the representatives that they need to do what they say. You know, when they passed that $1.6 trillion tax cut, which meant ma- that went mainly to rich people and corporations, um, there was a congressman from New York who stood on the floor of the House and he said, you know, my donors have told me that if I don't pass this law, if I don't get this law passed, I should never call them again. Right. And you're like, holy shit, here you are explicitly acknowledging that the reason you're supporting this is so that you get funders yep. to fund your campaign. What could be the most absolute confession of corruption than that? That he yep. wasn't embarrassed to say that. It was completely obvious to him. And everybody on the floor- Because they're all like that. that that's not like abnormal. That one example That one example shows you everything that's wrong with the Absolutely. system. He's not trying to do it because it's good for his state or good for his people. He's trying to do it because he needs that money to get reelected. Absolutely. And, and, and like, what more do you need to say beyond that? Right. Um, one, one thing about the voucher system that, that I'd like to, to bring up is um, when, when I bring up this idea, one of the pushbacks I get is from people, um, from conservatives, they say, like, what about um, a candidate, if, if you're just speaking to the public, you go out and you offer something like free college and free healthcare and free this and free that. Well, yeah, that's going to appeal to most people, whether it's sustainable or affordable or not. So aren't we going to get ourselves into positions with publicly funded elections where we're, where it's a little bit like high school and you have, you're running for student council and you say, you know, longer lunches and stuff like that. People will vote for you. You know, if we were Argentina under uh, Peron, <laughs> Or, you know, if we were a really poor developing nation, I might worry about that. But what's really striking about America is the deep conservatism inside of this country um, that resists these ideas, even though they're offered all the time. You know, I mean, obviously, like Bernie Sanders was promising all of that. And even in the Democratic Party, he couldn't get more votes than Hillary Clinton. Right. So. Uh, so I'm not worried that the American people are going to do stupid things. I think that the representatives need to start representing the American people. And then to the extent they're not, uh, American people are not doing things which we think are sensible, then that's what democracy is about. Let's fight them on the ideas. Let's not fight them on the question of how much money do I have and how much money do you have? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so on back on HR1, I, I had a gentleman in here, Larry Sharp. He ran for governor of New York as a libertarian candidate. And I brought up, it was right about the time when HR1 first came up. I brought that idea up to him. Um, My views are are pretty close to his as far as like freedoms and and whatnot. And I like HR1. I think it's got to be our our first step. And he said, and what he said made a little sense to me. He said, anytime you get one of these bills, they're typically something that should be down on three pieces of paper, but it ends up being 3,000 pieces of paper because every senator has to get their little thing in there to satisfy their uh, funders. So it's full of pork and garbage and it ends up making the situation worse than it was in the first place. He said the best thing to do to change campaign finance is, and it might sound a little bit ridiculous, but I'm not sure why. He says, make people running for office wear their donors on their sleeve, like NASCAR drivers. Whoever gives them money, they got to wear it and put it out there. And then it's up to the voters to decide if they want to vote for the guy getting $2 million from XYZ company. Why is that not a good idea? Well, I, I think it's funny. And this idea has been out there for a while. And there was actually an app that lets you pull up a picture of a congressperson and then it put a NASCAR shirt no on them based on their okay. funders. Yeah. So this is an idea that's been out there for a while. I actually think it doesn't help the system just to have transparency. Because if you've got a system where you've got to raise the money, um, you've got to bend over backwards to get that money and everybody needs to raise the money. So you know, the fact that somebody's getting money from Comcast and somebody else is getting money from Exxon doesn't change the fact that they're getting money from getting rich it. people and they're not getting money from everybody else. So they're focused on this tiny fraction and they're not focused on everybody else. And that is the core corruption. Now, I don't, wouldn't disagree with the characterization about how most bills are being written, this bill was an incredibly clean bill. If you actually read it, actually looked at it, um, you know, and part of the reason was nobody actually expected it to pass. So it was really a bunch of principles that were put together for the purpose of stating a clear idea. Um, and I'm no doubt that if it actually came to be passed, there'd be all sorts of junk in it. We should fight the junk. But you shouldn't give up the idea of reforming this corrupt system 
merely because the thing that will reform it isn't perfect. I can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, especially when the status quo is so awfully bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think the status quo is the people who say, you know, this is not something we can change are just wrong or they're either stupid or they think you're stupid, right? They're either, they don't get how the system's broken or they think they can fake you out and make you not recognize how the system is broken. And I think, you know, what's so encouraging to me is that when I started this work 12 years ago, I'm not saying it's because of me, I'm saying it's because of the culture, but when I started this work 12 years ago, it was really hard to get people to get it. They didn't really see the connection. And now there's literally no one except lobbyists who, who, who doesn't get it, right? They all right. recognize right. this corruption and we have to do something about it. Right, well, I mean, the Senate now for at least a decade has an approval rating of 10%. So I think people get that it's corrupt. I, I think everybody gets that. It's just hard for them to put their finger on it. And that's why I've started directing people to your TED Talk because you do a, a really great job of putting it into ideas that everybody can understand and not just you know Harvard law professors. You, you really do a great job with it. Um, my, what I'm wondering is, it's, it's a nice bill, but if it felt like, lip service. Like I, I heard you say on another podcast that there's no way it's going to pass with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. I don't think it, when you get right down to it, it would pass with Democrats either because most of them benefit from the same system. Well, this is the question. I, it's a fair question. And many people say that the Democrats all voted for it just because they knew it wouldn't pass. Um, but what's so important is that it's stated, it, it's a flag in the ground and it creates a real um, uh, bar against which to measure every Democrat and every candidate running for president. Uh, now, I, I would I would have a different HR one, I, or my POTUS one would be different. I would have vouchers. HR one was mainly matching funds. I might have a different way to solve the gerrymandering problem. Um, I would be much more aggressive in ending this absolutely absurd practice of suppressing the votes of people who happen to be the wrong color or wrong political party. Um, I would like to deal with the electoral college. You don't deal with the electoral college. So, I, you know, the particulars we could argue about, but the idea that we have a clear commitment to fundamental reform of this corrupted system creates, uh, uh, you know, uh, an expectation. And if the Democrats were elected or any president were elected, you know, if John Kasich took on this challenge and took on the president and beat the president and then were elected president of the United States and then did nothing about it, I think there'd be a revolution. I mean, I think there really would be like, if you really commit and make this fundamental and you say this is fundamental, the thing you're going to do first and you don't do it, then you're going to have a very short uh, life as president of the United States. Now, you know, Maybe. the problem is we haven't yet had anybody make that commitment. You know, Barack Obama. What about you? <laughs> Why not? Well, that's it, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned um, voter suppression, right? Um, so th this is, this is one area Vo suppressing the vote is a terrible thing, like removing polling stations and, and stuff like that. Terrible gerrymandering, awful. But the thing about voter IDs, I, I agree with that. Like we have a lot of people in this country who are here illegally. They should not be able to vote. Like if, if you don't have your life together enough to, to get, you know, your picture on a, a license or something, you know. What's wrong with voter ID? So it's the devil is in the details. So you look at what Texas did with voter ID. And, you know, there are a lot of people who don't have cars. They don't drive. They don't have driver's license. You know, they, they live in cities and, you know, God bless them. They take the buses or they, they ride bikes and they just don't drive. So they don't have a driver's license. And even driver's licenses in some of these schemes are not good enough if they're not real ID driver's licenses. And those require an extraordinary burden to gather. And most people, there's no reason to have them. Um, but number two, like in Texas, if you wanted to get, uh, the, you wanted to pass the voter ID test, and you went in with your um, University of Texas ID, which is a photo ID, it was no good. But if you went in with your local gun club registration card, <laughs> which didn't even have a photo on it, that was fine. Okay. So, so the point is they are crafting this very carefully to pick out the kinds of people they want to be able to vote I and see. the kinds of people they don't want to be able to vote. And they're increasing the costs on the people they don't want to be able to vote so that it tilts in favor of the people they do want to vote. So even if you had the same burden 
what we know, what the data shows is these voter ID burdens or any of these suppression burdens make it harder for Democrats to vote than for Republicans. That's the Got same it. burden for both sides, but one side can cover the burden really easily. Um, and, and so my point is, why do we allow them to screw around with the system for the sole purpose of rigging it against the other side? I mean, this is the most basic idea of a democracy. It's got to be an even, a level playing field. So we could solve the ID problem. We could have a government-issued ID, voting ID, like it could be completely silly, trivial for everybody to have it. I'm okay with that. I, I don't want non-Americans to vote. Um, uh, but we don't do that. What they do is you allow them to screw around with it to make it so that the other side can't win. And guess what? Democrats okay. have more support, but Democrats don't win. So to be clear, you're not necessarily against voter IDs. You're against the way they're implementing yeah. it, which is is not a fair way. Yeah, that, yeah. That's valid. I, I can understand that. That makes sense to me. Um, okay, shifting gears just a little bit. Um, I listened to your podcast. I don't, I don't remember the name. What's the name? Uh, Another Way. Yeah. And in the second season, you talk about a convention to amend the Constitution, which was a, a really interesting podcast. Um, how, I mean, it sounds like an impossible task to me. Like, how, how do you get something like that started? What's step one? Well, so the Constitution says there are two ways to amend it. Number one is to get two thirds of Congress to propose an amendment and then to get three fourths of the states to adopt it. And the second way is to get two thirds of the states to call for a convention. And then the convention drafts an amendment and then that has to be ratified by three fourths of the states. So the ratification is the same with both. The only difference is how you get an amendment on the table. And the reality is right now, the United States Congress is not gonna propose any interesting amendment. You're just not gonna get two thirds of this Congress to deal with the problem of the corrupt influence of money in politics. I mean, you know, with Mitch McConnell, who should be referred to as the Dark Lord, um, <laughs> when the Dark Lord controls the Senate, you're not going to have one Republican voting for any proposal to change the corrupting influence of money in politics. And you're going to need at least 20 to make it possible to win, 24 right now to make it possible to win. Um, so, uh, so I think this means that we have to think about other ways to propose an amendment because we need amendments in our Constitution. Our Constitution is really deficient in defending the right of democracy. And, you know, we could talk about other things too, like term limits. Um, we could talk about whether there's a fiscal responsibility amendment that makes sense. I'm happy to have all of those conversations, but we at least need a constitution committed to making sure we have a democracy that represents the people. Um, and, and I think the only way to do that is to have an Article 5 convention. And that's why I support groups like Wolfpack that are pushing hard to try to get state legislatures to call for one. Okay, good. And another thing you mentioned is um, you mentioned a paired convention, and I, I didn't really understand what that was. Could you just enlighten me? Right. So in the world of partisan politics that we live in right now, if uh, left wing, uh, if there was a left wing convention, people on the right would organize, mobilize to defeat it, either defeat the convention before it's called or defeat whatever proposal came out of it. And the same thing with a right wing convention. I mean, indeed, I, I'm on, you know, Democratic list right now. I get emails from uh, terrified people in the party about how this will be the end of the Constitution if the conservatives succeed in getting an Article 5 convention going. And of course, what they're doing is they're just using fear to raise money. This is like the best money-raising scheme possible because they've convinced, they've duped all these Democrats into believing it's the end of democracy if we had an Article 5 convention. So this is because it can be framed in a partisan way. And when I say there should be a paired convention, some that's going to, a convention to consider some liberal issues and some conservative issues. Going to give the liberals a chance to get equal representation as a fundamental principle on the Constitution. To give the conservatives a chance to have, for example, smaller federal government, which is what the Convention of the States movement wants, or a balanced budget, which is what many uh, conservative uh, states have been pushing for. To give us both a chance to make our proposals and see which ones go out to the states. Then neither side really can afford to rip the whole process to pieces. And so it's a fair opportunity for people to consider it without this partisan spin, which is really, of course, driven by the desire to raise money, which right. of course turns out to be the root evil in all of these contexts. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple things. Uh, so number one, a paired convention basically means it's not, it's bipartisan and that's the only kind that would have a chance to succeed. Yes. Um, but, but going back to finance and you're talking about how, 
the, the, the two parties, at least the rhetoric, not, not necessarily the actions, but the rhetoric gets more and more extreme, right? More and more extreme left. And isn't that because of number one, gerrymandering? Um, they, they, they just have to appeal to their, the people in their district who, you know, they gerrymander a, a district to make it completely conservative or completely liberal. So they're only speaking to one half of the country. So they take, they step the rhetoric up a notch. Isn't that part of the problem? We're so divided. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things I think that are contributing to this more ideologically sordid or partisan America. Gerrymandering is one of them because, you know, representatives know the only people they need to fear are even more extreme versions of themselves. Yeah, that's so, what happened with the, the Tea Party uprising. And now that's what ha- is happening now with uh, like social justice warrior types, yeah, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so this is the way in which the extremes have enormous power in the system. But the other thing that uh, happens is that as more and more of us get turned off from politics, and so it gets harder and harder to bring out people to vote, the politicians know the only people they need to talk to, even in the districts that are swing districts, the only people they need to talk to are the base, the kind of core partisan extremes. So they become extremes just to get them out. So it's almost like this you know, nightmare of like, they have to be louder and more outrageous mm-hmm. in order to inspire people to come out and vote. Um, and that's so Trump's that's, whole strategy right that's, now. That's Trump right there. That's yeah. Exactly. Going, going back to Trump, were you finished? I'm sorry. I would just want to add one third thing to it, which is the media itself. This is oh, amazing yeah. work by um, uh, Martin and Yugalok, um, which tracks the partisan content of CNN Fox News, and MSNBC. And what's amazing is until about 2001, you couldn't really tell the difference. But beginning in 2001, they, they just veer dramatically. So Fox is an extremely conservative network. MSNBC is extremely liberal. And uh, CNN is trying to hang in the middle someplace. And what that means is that people live in these different worlds. Bar- Barack Obama said, if you watch Fox News, you live on a different planet from people who read the New York Times. And so as you produce a public that is more and more partisan because they're exposed to these extremely fragmented partisan views, it pays as a politician to play to that. So the Mm -hmm. whole system drives us to this insanity that makes it impossible for us to do the basic things we need to do as a, as a Republic. Yeah. You're, you're preaching to the choir with that one. We talk about that on the show all the time. I mean, the news used to give you news. Now you have all these 24 hour news networks, where their their goal is profit, so they sensationalize everything. They don't talk about the wars. They don't because nobody cares anymore. It's it's twenty four seven Trump news on both sides, and it's yeah. it's unwatchable and they, for me. And they, and they you know most of their content is talking heads. Yeah, what talking heads know is that they have to be really crazy to be interesting. So mm-hmm. if you had a kind of boring talking head who said you know on the one hand, on the other hand, they'd be like, no, no, no this is too, this is too. No, uh, it's boring. What we need no, is some, wants. you know, somebody who's lighting his hair on fire. And so the audience wants to focus on him, like, because that's going to drive the attention. That's going to drive the bottom dollar. So, you know, we, we turn over understanding about our democracy to people who sell ads for a living, right? Yep. Isn't it any surprise that we have people who don't understand democracy? Yeah, it, it, it's tragic, really. Um, going back to Trump, and this is just a, a hypothetical. I, I had a little bit of hope for him when he came in because of some of the rhetoric and because I, I actually thought maybe he is funding his own campaign. Um, but I see the guy as being a total, he's a narcissist. I think most presidents are, but he takes it next level. I think more than anything, this guy wants to be worshiped. I don't think he's a, a down the ticket Republican. He had a, He actually had a lot of democratic ideas. And I feel like Democrats may have served themselves better when he came in, instead of resisting him so hard and going at him with the racism stuff and the sexism, to maybe embrace the guy a little bit, I think they could have gotten him to work for them. Could that have been the strategy? You know, if Trump were actually strategic, I think that would have been a good strategy. But what happened is when Trump came in, his administration was filled by a whole bunch of right-wing crazies. And they began to feed him what he had to do. And the things that they told him he had to do had no real relation to what he campaigned on. Remember, he promised universal health care better than Obamacare. Yeah. And then he got into office. He's like, oh, who knew this was so hard? And of course, what he's proposing is abolishing Obamacare. 
And, you know, when people talk about pre-existing conditions, even then we'd have no commitment to deal with pre-existing conditions. Um, same thing with, you know, uh, he came in, I thought one of the greatest things he said when he came in was the Iraq war. Yes. The greatest mistake. That's what got me. Policy. Yeah. Yep. Like, absolutely. Thank God. Um, but then he comes in and, you know, he's all this saber rattling. I'm pretty sure we're going to see a war in, in Latin America. Mm -hmm. um, we're involved in, you know, to save this presidency because, you know, you can't vote out a, a wartime president. Um, you know, so I, I don't think that he has actually any commitment to anything. You know, yeah. even the drain. No, he doesn't. He drained the swamp rhetoric. You know, there's this great interview where people were asking about it. And he's like, yeah, when I first said it, I, I thought it was kind of hokey. I didn't really thought, think it made a lot of sense. But the audience really loved it. So then I started embracing it. And you realize this is just a guy figuring out how to get the loudest reaction in those crazy rallies. And that is his policy. Yeah. But then, uh, but that's then why I'm saying they, they maybe could have gotten him to work for them because I don't think he has any principles. I think he just wanted to be applauded and and loved for being the greatest you know well the problem is you know steve bannon who was inside of his campaign and um you know now is is you know it's astonishing steve bannon is in europe right now um running campaigns all across europe to elect nationalists fascist nazi type people to the european parliament on may 6th i think we're going to see a extraordinary change in europe because of steve bannon but steve bannon was running the White House and Steve Bannon was a very committed populist conservative. So there was no deal to strike with Steve Bannon. But if if I had been Trump's um, chief of staff, I would have taken his rhetoric, drain the swamp, national health care. I would have said, look, walk out on day one and say, I'm going to sit down with Bernie Sanders and we're going to come up with a single payer health care plan that Bernie yeah. Sanders likes. And I'm going to pass it. And I'm going to sit down with John Sarkin, yep. and I'm going to get a public funding for election. So we end this corruption. We're going to do that tomorrow. The drain, the swamp is going to be drained. If he had done those two things, it would have been over. Yeah. Democrats would have to roll over and say, fine, you know, Mr. President, uh, you're going to be Mr. President for the next eight years. But, yeah. you know, he didn't do that. Instead, he did what Steve Bannon wanted him to do. And what that was is to continue, you know, so this, this most terrifying line from Steve Bannon was in his last interview. Uh, before he was fired in the Atlantic, where he said, you know, what we want is to get the Democrats to talk about race and identity politics every day between now and the election. And we're going to talk about the economy and we're going to kill them. Um, and then you realize, wow, it's just a strategy. Yeah. They just like drop this catnip of some race issue in front of the Democrats or some identity politics in front of the Democrats. And the Democrats can't resist it. No, like, they can't. And and can. and they're it's, doing it again. They're doing it again. Course, it's of course it's, it's such a it's such a great play for them. And and so and so this is why, you know, there's no chance for him in building a united America. This chance was always about how to continue to fragment us so that this kind of core right-wing crazy set would have an opportunity to leverage their power to become, you know, America. And you know, that's the thing you have to be afraid about. Right? To be fair, um, Democrats fall for it and they go hard on the identity politics and, and they don't seem to have learned from last time because that seems to be Joe Biden's entire platform. Um, but moving on from that, I, I want to ask you about uh, one controversial thing and then I, I want to circle back to something. I know you got other things to do, so we'll let you go. With what's going on in Venezuela, I, I feel we've got to mind our own business. I don't even believe the things they're telling me on any of these news channels. That doesn't mean they're not true. I just don't believe it anymore. We've been lied to too many times. Um, but a lot of my liberal friends, um, and I, I don't know your position on this, but they're very, they, you know, they want to get rid of the guns, right? Um, I don't agree with that. I, I, I'm, I feel strong about gun rights as I do about free speech. Doesn't this speak, do you feel that this speaks to that issue? Like part of the problem there is they took away the guns from the citizens and the citizens can't fight back. Where do you, where do you stand on that issue? Well, look, I uh, support sensible gun reg regulation. Um, and, but the reality is, even if you didn't have gun regulation, sensible gun regulation, there's no way that citizens resist uh, the army that the American government has built. I don't know about Venezuela. You know, maybe they'd be able to resist in Venezuela. But in the United States, we have the most powerful military force in the history of humanity. Mm 
True. And the idea with a bunch of people that a bunch of people with handguns or shotguns or even AK-47s is going to be able to resist the United States government is crazy talk. It's not possible. So if you're going to justify guns, people having guns, it's got to be for some other reason than that. Like the framers really did imagine that if you made sure everybody in the States had guns, then the militia could gather together and march on Washington if Washington got out of control. And that made sense yeah. as long as everybody was you know, carrying muskets. But you know, now that they have Stinger missiles and they have tanks and they have uh, you know, the kind of weapons of destruction which they've deployed all across the world, that, that plan doesn't work anymore. It makes no more sense. Right, well, so, no, in a full-scale attack on the American people, but it's at least a deterrent. Like they're not—they're not, not going to be able to slide in on the down low. They—they're going to have to come hard. Where, where right? have they ever? Where has that ever been true? I mean, you know, when those when those people up in the Washington uh, State, like they built their little compound and they deployed their guns, and they're like, "Now we got our guns, stay away." It was like, "Yeah, okay, we'll wait you out. We got more guns than you." I mean, I don't see how guns anywhere are creating a condition of, of limiting the government. In fact, exactly the opposite. Deploy the guns and the government is entitled to be even more oppressive. This was what, you know, the kind of nonviolent protesters, uh, uh, Gandhi and Ken, uh, King, recognized. Like the way to beat oppression is by being more peaceful than the oppressors. Because if you deploy violence, they are entitled to rain violence down upon you, and they have much more violence than you could ever muster. So again, the plan might have made sense in 1789 or 1791 when the Second Amendment was adopted. I, you know, we could argue about that. It makes no sense today. So if you want to justify guns, people having guns, you know, let's talk about the good reasons to have guns. Um, you know, uh, hunters, hunting is a very important part of our culture, and I, I completely agree people need to have the freedom to engage in that kind of uh, uh, behavior. But in 65th Street, Ch Chicago, South Chicago, people aren't hunting deer. They're not hunting bear. They're hunting humans. And so when Chicago says we want to get rid of guns or we want to limit significantly the guns that people have in 65th Street, South Chicago, I, I think you know the framers of the Second Amendment has nothing to do with that. This is about making it so people can live lives safely. And so uh, I... I you know, I don't know about Venezuela. I, I'm pretty confident about Chicago. Yeah, you, you make some good points, but I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole with this one for an hour. There's there's all kinds of arguments for the guns in places like Chicago and ideas that you're, you know, you're not going to get the guns out of the hands of the bad guys and so on and so forth. But other people can have that conversation. We don't need to have it. I okay. wanted to have you on about campaign finance reform. And I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, I joked earlier, but I kind of wasn't joking about the idea of a run, I mean, there's 20 candidates in there. This is an idea I think could really get traction. You said a couple candidates have brought it up. They certainly haven't put it in the forefront. Um, you have one guy who's running and his only issue is UBI. You have another guy running, his only issue is the, the uh, climate. This could be an issue someone or you could latch onto that I think would get traction. So why not consider it? Well, you know, one part of you is preaching to the choir. I, I'll, I'll tell you, I haven't told anybody, we haven't talked about this publicly. I mean, I, people have been pushing very hard. And, you know, what's really great about this year compared to four years ago is the Democrats have a very objective measure for whether you can be on the debate stage. And that's get 65,000 contributions. And as long as they come from a right mix of the states, then you can be on the debate stage. So there have been people in my movement who have said, look, you need to do this. Because yeah. you need to be there and say, this is the issue. We have to do this. I commit to doing this first. And we'll unite the nation around doing this. And I came this close, I can tell you, to, to pulling the trigger. Um, uh, and then people like uh, uh, Mayor Pete um, started singing the same song. we got to fix democracy first. Um, and so then it began to be like, you know, you can be convinced or not convinced by that. But the idea that somebody like me, like a professor, steps out and says, I'm going to do this because this is fundamental and I want to take it on, would immediately open people up to say, well, wait, Pete just said he's going to do it. And uh, Andrew Yang said he's going to do it. And Elizabeth Warren just said she's going to do it. So why do you need to be there if they're all saying they're going to do it? Now, um, you know, so that... Push the envelope a little bit. You could. You could push it, uh, you could push it a little bit. Part, uh, so it, it was a hard decision. But in the end, you know, I, I think... 
I think what weighs on me is um, you got to separate people's perception of what you're doing as a matter of ego from a matter of principle. Sure. And if there was nobody talking about this issue and I went out and I said, look, this is the fundamental issue. You know this is the fundamental issue. And that's why I'm out there fighting for it. People would have no question about why I'd be fighting for it. But I think part of the problem is if it gets clouded by like, you just want to be, you know, on a national stage, then it takes all of the power out of that message. So, you know, I'm pushing, we're really hard. We're launching a campaign called the POTUS One campaign that will get every one of these candidates to make this commitment. And we're going to do everything we can to make it central. Um, and, and I'm hoping that's going to be enough, but it is not. Look, I've committed. I'm going to do whatever the hell it takes to make Great. this reform possible. And, um, and uh, I can tell you from experience, running for president is not a simple task. Um, first of all, you know, here's something people don't even think about. How do you afford to run for president? Um, if you're a billionaire or a senator, it uh, doesn't matter. Like you're a senator, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or uh, uh, Kamala Harris or Cory Booker, they run for president. Their checks still yeah, come from salary. the government. Yeah. They get their salary. If you're a billionaire, you don't need a salary. But if you're somebody like me, if I announce for president, my money stops from that moment. Right. And I'm not allowed to get any money from my campaign until a month before the primary. Yep. So I don't know about you, but That's I don't maybe have something else that should be addressed with campaign exactly. finance yeah. reform. Yeah. I don't have seven months worth of salary sitting in a bank account somewhere. I don't know if right. you do, but you no. know, so if you live, you know, like most of us do, uh, it's really hard to imagine doing something like that. But, you know, I've said, if it makes sense, I will do it. Um, and what I'm encouraged by is it sounds like we might be able to get people who uh, uh, are exciting a lot of people to make this commitment. And if they do, then, then that's it. That's all I care about. Let's Great. get this system reformed. Awesome. I I'm glad we have you out there fighting that fight. So you mentioned POTUS 1. Is that what you called it? Yeah. So we're going to announce this. We're going to announce this in about two weeks. So at equalcitizens.us, equalcitizens.us, if you sign up, you'll know about it. And then you can join the campaign. It's really critically important that we get hundreds of thousands of uh, people to just call out to these candidates and say, make the commitment, make this commitment, so that we know we're going to say by Labor Day of 2019, we're going to want every one of these candidates to take a position. And if they don't, we know who we're going after. We're going to know who we're going to defeat. Fantastic. All right, Dadheads, you heard it. Go there, get involved. This this is might not be the most important issue, but it's the first issue. Did I say that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for Thank putting you. up with our incompetence on the time zone stuff. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a real pleasure. Thank you.